according, according to this, our next speaker <laughs> is, uh, is Eric Ries. Um, if you've heard uh, venture capitalists use the word pivot way too often in their conversation, like when they decide to send back an entree that they ordered and it comes out wrong and they decide to pivot and get a different entree altogether, the person you have to thank for that is Eric Ries. Uh, his concept is the lean startup. He's uh, done about three pretty lean startups. The one you probably know is MUIMVU. Uh, 3D avatar world gaming um, kind of situation. Uh, he wrote Java books when he was in high school. Please welcome Eric Reese. Thank you. Thank you all very much. I'm very excited to be here. Um, I got to tell you, years ago when I was sitting uh, in a cubicle at Microsoft, you know, and reading Joel on software, you know, I was like, wow, that Joel is like he's like a major celebrity in my world. And so to get the email from Joel uh, to say. You know, come speak at my conference. It was like, for me anyway, getting an email from Lady Gaga asking me to come perform on stage you know, with her. I was like, well, okay, maybe it's not exactly the same, but you get the idea. It was very exciting. Uh, so I'm very pleased to be here. Um, uh, I want to just set up some quick ground rules. The most important one is that I do not want your undivided attention. Uh, so who has a mobile phone? That's just a question to see who's paying attention. Not that many people. Okay, please take it out of your pocket. Hold it up. Thank you. Turn it on. Okay, no phones off, please. Uh, laptops on, power on, get online. If you're not online, you're basically not alive. So get online. And all I ask, you know, if your attention starts to wane, uh, you know, whatever happens, lean startup is the hashtag. So tweet amongst yourselves. Uh, but as you see, I really welcome feedback. So if I say something that you think is worth tweeting, I appreciate uh, hearing about it. And of course, if, you, if I say something that is, you know, too dumb for words, I appreciate hearing about that too. Again, lean startup hashtag. So I have been uh, on this kind of journey to promote this thing called the Lean Startup for the past two years. It means I can't get this thing. And I wrote this blog, Startup Lessons Learned, and I never thought that I would do this for a living. I used to be an engineer, and I, that was, that's a job I really understood well. This I understand less well. But you know, what keeps me going, the reason I get excited about doing this, is that I have been imploring audiences, you know, whoever would listen, basically, to stop wasting people's time. It's actually that simple. Most of the products that we make are never used by anybody. And if you think about that, that's got to be a preventable condition. There has to be a way for us to stop living like that, to stop pouring people's time and talent into activities that go nowhere. Uh, and that's what I think, by changing the, the way that we go about building new products, new companies, I think we can change that outcome. Um, everyone knows that most startups fail. Uh, most of my startups have failed. And I know if you're trying to become a professional expert, that's actually not a good way to start. You're not supposed to be like, hi, everybody, most of my adventures have failed. I have built plenty of products that nobody uses, and I'm, I'm quite embarrassed to say. But we have to start getting serious about the fact that this is an epidemic in our industry. I brought a demonstration. Anyone remember Web 2.0? So at the height of Web 2.0, this is from 2006, a graphic designer put together this chart kind of to encapsulate the incredible wave of innovation that Web 2.0 was going to unleash. And then uh, just three years later, another graphic designer was feeling a little disillusioned and put together this graphic. Here's our three years report card on Web 2.0. You can see already something like half the companies are covered in blood red X's because they're no longer with us, which is pretty embarrassing. And the green circles, I don't know if you can see, mark those companies that had an exit. So those are the companies that I guess, you know, by somebody's standard were successful. And then the unmarked companies are the ones that are still alive. Of course, many of the companies still alive are just sitting in the land of the living dead. So consuming resources like a zombie, but no one can quite put the bullet through the head to take them down. That's not a good use of people's time. And the green circles, sure, many of them, you know, somebody made money, and I'm all for people making money, but what about 
asking the question, were they successful by this higher standard? Namely, did they actually succeed in living up to the raw amount of time, talent, potential, creativity, and energy that was poured into them by their founders and employees? And I think by that even higher standard, very few of these companies can be graded a success. And I think that's depressing. And I think we can do something about it. And we gotta, you know, to do something about it, we've got to figure out who to blame. Whose fault is it that these companies have failed? Uh, whose fault is it that my company's failed? Certainly not mine. So <laughs> I like to blame this guy. Here's Frederick Winslow Taylor. Uh, he is the father of scientific management. Uh, it might seem a little odd to blame failures in our industry on a guy who died before the invention of the digital computer, which I guess is kind of unfair. But hey, you know, I'm alive. The thing is, and it's funny to use the word blame to talk about Taylor's impact, because in fact, the incredible material abundance that we enjoyed in the 20th century is directly attributable to this man's ideas. He had the very simple insight, which is, we should use science to study work in order to make it more efficient, which is an idea that is so stunningly obvious, it's hard to remember that it had to be invented. And in fact, most of us who have heard of Frederick Winslow Taylor have mostly heard about his discredited ideas, like time and motion studies uh, and the idea that workers should be treated like automatons, because his true contributions, all of them, we now take so for granted, we can't imagine that they had to be invented, right? That we should study work. That uh, in 1899, when what we now call blue-collar work was done, it was done by skilled craftsmen. And the idea was uh, it required years of work by a craftsman to become a master craftsman. And if you were to suggest to somebody that a business owner or a manager could somehow tell that craftsman what to do to know that person's job better than they do, you'd be considered an idiot because you haven't trained for all the years of doing the work of craftsmen. Does this sound any, to anybody familiar? Just a little bit? Because it turned out that within only a few years, Taylor and his colleagues, when studying even ancient crafts like bricklaying, gardening, shoveling, were able to use science to discover more efficient ways to do tasks that everyone thought they already knew how to do best. And thus was born the idea of white collar work, or what we call management. You gotta remember, Taylor and his peers were engineers. The very first managers were engineers. What we call management, they called shop management. They were trying to manage machine shops. Machine shops were the world's first self-replicating technology. With a machine shop, you can build the tools to build another machine shop. And every time you do that, you have the opportunity to get more efficient. And so that idea that that should be our goal, to become more efficient, to divide work into tasks, that those tasks should be done by specialists who, and managers of specialists who themselves specialize, that was all worked out by engineers 100 years ago. Uh, and it's almost the 100th anniversary of this utterance of Taylor's. In the past, the man was first. In the future, the system will be first. Taylor was the first person to conceive of work as a system and try to figure out ways to optimize not just the individual work that people do, but the whole system, the whole productivity of the whole system. An idea that we take completely for granted today. And yet, like any paradigm, this was the first paradigm of management the world has ever seen. And like any paradigm, it, its very success has sowed the seeds of its demise. So uh, generations of people have handed down this paradigm from one to the next. When I received it, it looked like this. This is the waterfall methodology of product development. People are laughing because anytime you hear a, a talking head use the word waterfall to describe this, you know they're about to wail on it. <laughs> it's like an uh, unwritten rule. People who actually like to do it this way would never call it waterfall. It's a, per, it's a pejorative term. But the thing you understand is when I was trained in engineering, you know, in school, at Microsoft, in the venture-backed startups that I worked at, I was taught this as the manufacturing metaphor of software development. 
you can imagine, incidentally, how pissed I was when I found out they don't even use it in manufacturing anymore. So it's not clear to me what our excuse is. But as much fun as it is to beat up on waterfall, it's important to understand that this is a system that works really well in a specific context. And of course, it's the context that Fred Taylor would know very well. Situations where the problem is known and the solution is also known. So when we're building something, like a new machine shop, very similar to something we have built before, or maybe like a video game sequel, this can work. And in fact, it's very efficient to break the work into tasks and have people specialize in each of the individual tasks. Uh, when I did this in one of my startups, a startup that I joined, we were trying to build this really cool virtual world. So we had a huge vision, change the world kind of situation. We really wanted to not build something cheap, quick to, you know, built to flip, but really change the world. And so what we did is we raised something like $50 million and spent about five years in stealth R&D uh, building out the product. And those of you who've been around the business long enough should already be able to predict the outcome from those two simple statements. <laughs> because it's almost inevitable that we did what I call achieving failure. Right? We successfully implemented the plan. We did it with high efficiency, but it turned out that there weren't customers to support our business at the end. After our huge high-profile launch and then crash, the company eventually became a defense contractor. You know, strange kind of failure to have for a consumer products company, but anyway. <laughs> it's kind of depressing, right? And yet, here's the thing you got to understand. If you've never been through this kind of reality distortion field experience, the whole time we were building, for you know, almost five years, we were getting constant positive reinforcement that we were on track, we were being disciplined, we were metrics driven, we were advancing to the next stage of the waterfall constantly. And every time we advanced, we would celebrate. That's the unit of progress in waterfall development is that we advance to the next stage. The assumption is that somewhere out there, there is an all-wise manager who, like Fred Taylor would have, studied the problem in great detail, worked out what needs to be done, and our job is to execute with high fidelity. Anyone ever lived through that before? Anyone ever achieved failure? Good, thank you for being honest. So I don't think it has to be this way. And I think uh, the Lean Startup is fundamentally about taking the practice of entrepreneurship and putting it on a more sound, a more scientific footing. And in order to do that, we have to start with a definition. Because I think we kind of know a startup when we see it, but that mythology that we have in our heads of the two guys in a garage eating ramen noodles, inventing the future, is actually very misleading. And what makes an entrepreneur is not what kind of noodles you eat, but it's the kind of context that you operate in. So here's my definition. A human institution designed to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And uh, you guys have put together a great lineup for today. So you've already really heard a lot about the importance of the human part of entrepreneurship. Uh, and of course, the importance of disruptive innovation in creating something that is truly different than what has come before. I want to focus today on the extreme uncertainty. But also just incidentally notice that this definition has nothing to do with size of the company, sector of the economy, or industry. Absolutely nothing. Doesn't matter if you're two guys in a garage or 200 people in a new division. If your job is to create something new under conditions of extreme uncertainty, then you are an entrepreneur, whether that's what you think you signed up for or not. And this is just a fancy way of saying that a startup is an experiment. When we call the Lean Startup innovation through experimentation, this is what we mean. It asks us to reconceive everything we do as entrepreneurs. Everything we do, every new feature we build, every new marketing campaign that we create, everything as an experiment designed to teach us what we don't know. And because of that, because it is not just an experiment in product development, it's an experiment in institution building, that means another kind of counterintuitive truth, that the experiment is not just in can something be built, but should it be built? And in particular, can we build a sustainable organization around a series of products and services? Which means that entrepreneurship is management. 
And if there's a more bizarre juxtaposition of two words in the English language, I don't know what it is. Because entrepreneurship in our day, in our, in our time and place, is a hot and sexy thing that cool people do. It gets them on the cover of magazines. And management is probably the most boring activity that people do. So you know, guys in gray suits and giant bureaucracies. So putting the two ideas together may seem kind of strange. But I believe the time has come for a new management paradigm. Not better, not worse than the old 20th century general management that was started by Fred Taylor but simply different, geared specifically to the conditions of extreme uncertainty. Is that making sense so far? Okay. The pivot. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, you've already heard that this is by far the most overused piece of jargon of the year 2010. I never had any idea of what was being unleashed when I started using this word to describe something in startups. I knew it was getting out of hand when I saw this in the New Yorker. Can you read this caption? <laughs> I'm not leaving you, I'm pivoting to another man. <laughs> I thought, oh lord, what have I done? But there's absolutely no way to understand entrepreneurship without understanding this fact. That the great entrepreneurs, when they encounter difficulty, do not give up hope. They don't just go home. Neither do they persevere the plane right into the ground. Instead, they take this kind of combination of commitment and iteration. And we use the metaphor of the pivot from basketball, keeping one foot firmly rooted in what they have learned while changing systematically one other thing at a time about their business. And if you look at the successful entrepreneurs and compare them to the failed entrepreneurs and ask yourself, what's the same and what's different? One of the things that's the same, surprisingly, is the initial quality of their idea. In general, very poor. I would go so far as to say, in general, crazy. What's different is that the successful entrepreneurs were able to find this zigzaggy path, which only in retrospect seems obvious. And unfortunately, there's this kind of mythological industrial complex out there who's designed to sell you the idea that startup founders are heroic, their ideas are brilliant, and they kind of always were in the right place at the right time, had a very linear path. That benefits everybody, myself included, except it happens to be wildly inaccurate. So sorry about that. The premise of the Lean Startup, therefore, is also correspondingly simple. If we can reduce the time between pivots, we can increase our odds of success before we run out of money. Because what matters is not how much runway do you have left. It doesn't matter how much money you have left. It only matters how many pivots do you have left. And yes, you can get more pivots by raising more money. But you can also get more pivots by reducing the time it takes to learn from each pivot. If that's starting to sound familiar, uh, it might be because the Fred Taylor management paradigm is not the current reigning uh, paradigm. Uh, there's all this talk of iteration and pivoting and doing things uh, in a more efficient way, a more value-creating way is owed primarily to these two guys. Uh, this is Deming and, and a guy named Taichi Ono, who's the father of the Toyota production system. This current management paradigm, which has produced almost everything you see in this room, from the chairs to your clothes to the laptops you're typing on, uh, originated in Japan in the post-war period and has come to totally dominate the manufacture of physical goods. So we owe these guys a great debt. Um, when this lean revolution was translated into software, it came to look like this. Here's our own management guru from software, Kent Beck. I put it in sepia tone you know, so it would fit in. He is still alive, though. I can't. Uh, and of course, not just Kent Beck. Many members of the Agile Alliance have made this possible. Extreme programming just happens to be my favorite. Um, the idea here is that if we build product more iteratively, with the customer actually a joint participant in the process, so not just a teddy bear sitting next to us, so I love that idea from Dharmesh, but actually physically sitting with the engineers, then whenever we want, and we have a question about what are we supposed to build, we can turn to the customer and say, excuse me, could you give me an authoritative answer about what this feature should look like, what this marketing campaign should be, or any other question we have? The thing that's important to understand about Agile is it has its roots exclusively inside the IT organizations of big companies. For a context where the problem is known, it's the solution that's unknown. So when the Chrysler Corporation needs a new payroll system, nobody has to ask, why is payroll important? Why would a company want payroll? We know. And what's it supposed to do? We know. 
The issue is how can we port it to this different architecture, or how can we build a system that does it more efficiently? And so the unit of progress of Agile is fundamentally a line of working code, which is really a big deal. It means getting rid of all of the other extraneous factors like meetings and documents that go stale and you know, specification documents that nobody reads and all that nonsense, removing it from development and really focusing on the production of stuff. Uh, the problem is that as entrepreneurs, we don't live in this world either. The, the lean revolution began with a simple question. How can we tell the difference between value-creating activities and wasteful activities? Which, I guess, it must have seemed kind of obvious to the people who were asking it for the first time, but it actually was a big deal. Instead of just asking, how can we do whatever it is we've done before most efficiently, which is basically Fred Taylor's insight, the question was, is everything that we currently do actually necessary to produce value for customers? And it turns out there are a lot of things that we were doing in manufacturing and then throughout our industrial economy that turned out to have no value, like moving batches of stuff around. Right? Customers don't care if you efficiently transport the parts of a car fast. They just want the car. And so focusing on the cycle time of how long it takes you to go from idea to completion uh, is a big deal. But here's the problem. Deming made famous the idea that the customer is the most important member of the production line. The idea is that only things that count in the eye of the customer should count to us. But what if you don't know who the customer is? When we talk about extreme uncertainty, the biggest uncertainty that most startups face is who their customer will be. If you don't know, then how do you know what they'll value? How do you know whether, uh, how are we going to sit next to the engineer so that they can turn and get an authoritative answer? In entrepreneurship, we can't do that. We live in this world of the unknown problem and the unknown solution. Uh, Another management guru, a mentor of mine named Steve Blank, also still alive. Hi, Steve. Uh, but in sepia tone, you know, it's important. Uh, created this thing called customer development, which is a parallel process to agile development for concurrently asking the question, who's the customer, what problem are we trying to solve for them, in line with building iteratively a product that serves our current hypothesis about who those customers are going to be. This changes the unit of progress from a line of working code to what I call validated learning. And I'll illustrate with a story uh, from company you just heard about called IMVU. When we were starting, uh, we call it InView, just get used to it. When we started InView, we wanted to bring the power of kind of virtual worlds and 3D messaging uh, to the masses. And at that time, this is circa 2004, so the hot new technology for social networking was instant messaging. Remember that? So we wanted to create an instant messaging company that would be you know, more intimate, more uh, expressively communicative. And so our theory was as follows. We sat at the whiteboard and we thought hard about the strategy for this company. And we, we reasoned as follows. Everyone knows that IM is a network effects business, right? The value of the network increases proportionally with the square of the number of participants. That's Metcalf's law. And since everyone already had an IM client, uh, there would be high switching costs to create a new one because you have to kind of bring all your friends with you. And therefore, IM is a barrier, has a high barrier to entry as an industry. And therefore, we could not create a standalone IM network. Does that sound reasonable? When I give that talk uh, in front of MBA audiences, as I will later this week, I usually get a lot of head nodding. I'm like, that sounds pretty smart. And then we get even better when I say, well, and so our brilliant strategy to avoid that, that barrier to entry was we create an instant messaging add-on that would interoperate with all of the existing IM networks. So you wouldn't have to create a new buddy list. You wouldn't have to learn new software. You just poof, turn your uh, instant messaging into 3D instant messaging. Does that sound clever? Yeah. I get some chuckles, so some people know the ending. Uh, for, for reasons we don't really have time to get into in, in detail, everything I just told you in my analysis is 100% wrong. Uh, network effects, incorrect. Switching costs, incorrect. Barriers to entry, incorrect. Therefore, IM strategy, woefully incorrect. <laughs> and I want you to just think about me for a second. Okay, just sympathize with me. I was the primary technical co-founder of this company, and we spent something like six months developing this IM add-on software. I mean, crazy hours, you know, the startup, the true startup thing. And then it probably took us another three or four months 
to realize that it was basically completely flawed. And we wound up having to throw all that code away. And I was personally depressed. Why? Because I'd been following Agile, which has told me that I could drive the waste out of my development you know, process. And yet I had just committed the biggest waste of all in product development, which is building something that absolutely nobody wants. And I thought, gosh, would the company have been just as well off if I had spent the last nine months of my life on a beach somewhere drinking Mai Tais, as it was with me writing this code, which after all got thrown away? Anyone have an answer to that question? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, someone has those over here? Yes, anybody want to throw it out? No. No? <laughs> no, why not? Because I learned something. I, that's always the answer to this question. Anyone who's been in any kind of management position or any kind of managerial organization will know, what do you do when you fail to execute? You claim to have learned something. <laughs> It is the last refuge of all execution failures. It's what you hide behind. And is it any wonder that in management circles, you know, people who actually practice management, learning is like the kiss of death. You never want to say that word. It's a really bad connotation. But that's exactly what I did. I said, well, we, if I hadn't built all this code, we wouldn't have learned this important thing about customers, and therefore, uh, it was worthwhile. And that's how I made myself feel better. Until I had the following dark thought. When it's follows. If the goal of the last nine months was to learn this important thing about customers, why did it take nine months? Why wasn't I asking myself along the way, could I learn the same amount in a shorter amount of time? For example, did I have to support 12 different IAM networks for interoperability? Would I have learned the same thing, namely that no customers want IAM interoperability with only six networks? <laughs> yes. With three? What about with only one? I guess so. But then, this is the really dark thought. Did I actually need any code at all? What if I just created a single web page that offered people the opportunity to download 3D instant messaging you know, add-on software to add avatars to their IM networks. Would anybody have clicked the download button? The answer was basically no. <laughs> so if I couldn't even get people to download my software, why did I have to write it? And listen, maybe that was the right thing to do, maybe not. But the fact that I could even ask that question was horribly, horribly depressing. Because my job was an engineer. My job is to make code, right? A working line of code is the way I evaluated progress. And what I realized is that's just fundamentally wrong. Along the way, I needed to be ask, asking, how can I learn what I need to learn about customers? Right? When I talk about reconceiving every product development feature as an experiment, that's what we need to do. In other words, as engineers, we're generally trained, given a specification of a product, how can we achieve that specification at the lowest cost? And it makes us feel really good when we figure out a way to get 80% of the value for only 20% of the cost. But if we're building something that nobody wants, who cares if we do it on time and on budget? Who cares if it's high or low quality? It doesn't matter. Everything we're doing with lines of code is wrong. Instead, we have to ask, how can we learn what we need to learn at the lowest cost? And that's a really different way of thinking about product development. Here's the basic scheme. A software company is absolutely nothing but a catalyst that turns ideas into code. Everything else is a side effect. When customers interact with that code, we can choose to measure it, which generates data, qualitative and quantitative which if we want, we can choose to learn, influencing our next set of ideas. This is like the Fisher-Price model of entrepreneurship. Except this is a very powerful diagram. This feedback loop gives us a clear heuristic that we can use to evaluate any proposed process or architecture change in a startup. Namely, does it minimize the total time for this feedback loop, or does it sub-optimize by making us really good, Fred Taylor style, at one of the individual activities? Right? When I was an engineering manager, I used to say stuff like, customers don't care what kind of reports we have. They only care if we have a good product. So why are we wasting all this time on data warehousing and measuring crap that nobody ever looks at anyway? Let's just code faster. And the problem with that argument is that it is true. 
If you stop measuring, you can build new features faster, in the same way that if you close your eyes and just floor the accelerator, you can get the car going at maximum speed. But of course, our goal is not to get the car in motion as fast as possible. Our goal is to get to some kind of destination. And similarly, if there's any data warehousing people in the room, you might have occasionally found yourself uttering the idea that if measuring some things is good, measuring more things is better. Uh, and therefore, we should have 10,000 graphs. Of course, nobody learns from 10,000 graphs. You only learn from the fewest number of key ones that teach us what we need to, to, uh, to learn. And then, of course, I, I affectionately call it the MBA fallacy, although many of my friends, my best friends are MBAs, as they say. Uh, the idea that if you iterate at the whiteboard, that is the fastest way to learn. That's how we came up with the IM add-on strategy in the first place. Except iterating at the whiteboard is a magic fact-free zone, where all you're doing is you know, getting high on your own supply. So not, a, not necessarily a good idea. So what we need to do is figure out, how do we get through this loop as quickly as possible? So I, I brought with me some slides. Uh, just I very quickly want to walk through a couple of different specific techniques from the Lean Startup model. Uh, first of all, do not confuse the tactics with the principles. Uh, I spent all this time trying to walk through the principles of the Lean Startup so that you can evaluate for yourselves whether these tactics actually may or may not work. My contention, my thesis for you to prove or disprove in your own life, is that each of these techniques operate at a specific stage of the feedback loop but have the net effect of uh, minimizing total time. The first one is probably the most controversial in the Lean Startup arsenal. It's called continuous deployment. Uh, at InView, we were famous for having put software into production uh, about 50 times per day on average, so some days more, some days less. I like to look around at that point to see if there's an engineer who's got that look on his face. Like, that does not seem like a good idea. <laughs> Who, everything was sounding good in that way, wait, hold on, hold on, what? Right, because think of all the things that could go wrong. Uh, someone could just take the site down if they wanted to. They could regress an old bug. My personal favorite, remove the checkout button from your e-commerce flow, right, turning your business back into a hobby. <laughs> and those things can happen, but the discipline of Continuous deployment makes it very unlikely. We actually engage in prevention of those uh, activities. And the plus side is that we can put software into production as fast as we can write it. It takes about 20 minutes between time that software is written, checked into the trunk, there's no branches, uh, and the time that's live in production. Uh, so that allows us to do the features that take more time to prioritize than they do to build and just run experiments constantly. The reason you have to understand the theory of the Lean Startup is this is just going to sound nuts if you evaluate it Fred Taylor style. Right? Does this make everyone in the organization individually more efficient? No, because they're shipping, they're deploying software all the time. It would be a lot more efficient, efficient to batch it up and do it all one month at a time or three months at a time or, God forbid, you know, put the year that the software was written in the name of the software. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, dear, what kind of iteration cycle are we going to have then? And, of course, what are the odds that by the time we realize we've made a horrible mistake in product development, what are the odds that we'll actually remember what we were thinking at the time? Right? If, the, if the feedback is extremely fast, we're going to learn really fast. If the feedback is extremely slow, we're going to run up against the limits of human memory. So here are the like, very basic continuous deployment principles, and I promise I'll talk specifics just very briefly. First, we have a commitment to having every problem under the sun exactly one time. Our motto at InView was, make any mistake you want. If you make the same mistake twice, you're fired. <laughs> very simple. Uh, and so we would have people, for example, deploy to production on their very first day of, em of employment. We would hire a new engineer, and if by the end of the day they hadn't shipped to production, we would be like, boy, something is seriously wrong. And you know, if it happened on day two, okay, but day three, major, major crisis. Almost always happened on day one. And you can imagine for people you know, trained in a large company, that was maybe a little bit scary. Uh, they would have a little bit of resistance to doing that. They would always ask questions like, wait a minute, what if I accidentally take the site down? And our point of view was, if it's so easy to take our site down that someone can do it on their first day, shame on us for making it too easy. Second is that, uh, so we have this kind of um, commitment to get to the root cause of things and fix them. 
so that they never happen again. That requires creating time and space for that to happen. And so we took an idea directly from the Toyota production system. Everyone knows the famous and-on cord that any employee can pull to stop the production line if they see a quality problem. We took the same approach. Whenever anything happens, we immediately stop work and create the space before we start working again to fix that problem. Our assumption is that if our process is developing problems, if it's shipping code that doesn't work or taking the site down or whatever it's doing, it's not the individual person's fault, it's the system's fault. And so continuing to operate the system while it's malfunctioning is fundamentally crazy. And then the other thing that can really kill you, especially in a startup, is trying to prevent every possible problem. Right? If you want to kill someone's project, this is especially true in big organizations, just sit in the product planning meeting and start mentioning corner cases of things that might go wrong. Right? That thing might cause an asteroid to fall on our customers. It might cause their house to catch on fire. It might cause their computer to, and it's like, you can start to quit like, okay, well, how are we gonna prevent that from happening? You start to like, plus up the spec, because it's gotta take into account all these corner cases. Pretty soon it's so big, it's pretty easy to ax and do your much smaller project instead. Uh, startups do that to themselves. They don't need some extra person to do it, although God forbid if they have VCs involved, you know, then it can really get out of control. So instead of even going into that argument, what we do is say, we just wanna make sure that we invest, instead of in preventing specific problems, in making our whole system more agile, so that we'll be able to respond quickly if it happens. And because we'll never have every problem you know, a second time, then we'll be able to invest in the prevention at the time. Does that make sense? Here's specifically what it means. Uh, if you want to do continuous deployment, you obviously have to be able to deploy the software quickly. As I mentioned, it takes about 20 minutes on average at InView. Uh, most of that time is not copying files around, but really trying to certify the change to make sure it's actually good, not harmful. And then if it is harmful, you have to be able to revert it quickly. So I'm sure somebody in this audience, while I was talking about the, um, the business to hobby bug, right, removing the to checkout button from the e-commerce flow, would be like, come on, that's not a very good example. Anyone with a halfway decent continuous integration server and some functional testing can stop that, right? So let me make the problem a little harder. My personal favorite. Instead of removing the button as our hilarious April Fool's prank, come on back to my desk, we'll go back in time to InView, and we'll just make the button white on a white background. So it's still there. It's just no human beings can see it. And then we'll check that in. If we actually did that experiment in InView, of course, we actually did stuff like that all the time, not intentionally, but by accident. Well, what happened is that within 20 minutes, I would get an email from the, what we call the cluster immune system. Dear Eric, this is your cluster calling. I see that you tried to check in change number you know, 4731. That was catastrophically bad idea. So it's been automatically reverted. And we've actually shut down the line so that nobody else can check anything in until someone gets to the bottom of what the heck happened. Oops, so much for my April Fool's joke. Because the, the cluster immune system is monitoring not just does the software work as intended, but is it producing the intended business results for the company? And if that's some, suddenly going, you know, when we've deployed to 20% of, of machines in the cluster and revenue is down 20%, that's not a very good indicator. And when we've deployed to 40% of the machines and now revenue is down 40%, uh, we need to immediately revert and that's what happens automatically. In order for that to work, of course, you have to work in small batches, just to give you a sense of what I mean. If we had an individual engineer writing software, you know, by themselves for about three days, we would consider that a large batch. God forbid you had a team of five working on a branch for two weeks, we would consider that a ridiculously large batch. Because most of the work involved in creating a new feature is not actually the feature itself, it's all the integration between that feature and all the other libraries and APIs and everything else under the hood. All those changes that are side effect free, right? We're just widening the API a little bit and putting the default to be the old thing it was before. That won't cause any changes, right? Right? If that's true, let's just deploy it right now and make sure. What's the harm? You're the one who said it was side effect free. Why not put it into production? We'll be the acid test. Of course, if we make a mistake, cluster immune system will bail us out. Uh, we, you know, we use a lot of open source software to make this happen. You know, everyone in the company had a sandbox. When I say everyone, I mean not just the engineers, but everyone in the company. If you were in marketing, QA, operations, anybody who wants a sandbox, you could have one. And in fact, 
if you could figure out how the sandbox worked, it was relatively simple, and you would start to realize, hey, wait a minute, this template of HTML looks a lot like the thing I see in my browser, and there's a typo here and a typo there. Can I just change this typo and make it go away? Our point of view was, sure. If our system is so easy to take down that a marketing person could do it, shame on us. <laughs> so if you want to teach yourself to code and check in changes, God bless you, as long as you follow the process that we've developed. Uh, we, of course, ran continuous integration. We used BuildBot. Uh, I would say about 10% of the computational power of our cluster was devoted uh, just to running these tests, because we had to get them to run in 20 minutes. We did the incremental deploy, that cluster immune system idea. Uh, we also did alerting and predictive monitoring, so the idea was, you know, if we ever had a problem that we didn't catch with our immune system, we want to get somebody out of bed immediately with their pager going off. And then every time a defect would make it through these layers of defense, we would ask, how could we strengthen the layers of defense a little bit so it's less likely that that would happen? Later, right? So if we get, someone got paged in the middle of the night, why didn't we catch it in the step before? Why didn't we catch it in continuous integration? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make sense? Let me talk about another uh, buzzword that probably some people here are sick of hearing about already called minimum viable product. This is not quite as bad as Pivot, but it's getting there. Um, I'll just go through this relatively quickly because hopefully it'd be self-evident by now. Let me just remind us, why do we build products in the first place? Right? They, as I said, they are experiments to teach us things, but what do they want to teach us? How to delight customers, how to get them to sign up, how to make money from them, but more importantly, how to realize a big vision. You do not need any of these techniques if your goal is to build something small. Just build it, see what happens, is fine. When we're trying to do something big, though, the number of assumptions starts to really pile up, and that's what we're trying to prevent with minimum viable product. Most people I know fall into one of two camps, one I call maximize chances of success. That's basically like we only get one swing at the ball, so let's make it as good as possible. That's what leads to features creep or scope creep. Uh, or the you know, opposite, which is release early, release often, also has its problems. Like as soon as you have three customers, you already have five opinions about what you should do next. Now what? So you can't just listen to customers. We have to have a vision and test that vision against what customers will accept. So, Here's minimum viable product. The minimum number of features needed to begin that feedback loop of learning and discovery. Because I know we have a lot of engineers in the room, I can confidently say much more minimum than you think. So if you're ever actually in the situation where you're not sure, just as a thought experiment, try cutting it in half, cutting it in half again, and cutting it in half one more time, and ask yourself, what would happen if I shipped that, one-eighth of what I was thinking of shipping? Would the world really come to an end, really? Because the opposite of customers loving your product is not them hating it and telling all their friends. The opposite is indifference. But if people are indifferent, what's the harm in doing it? And maybe they won't be indifferent, right? I think one of the secret fears is maybe they'll actually like the crap that I put out there. What would that say about my internal you know, value of quality and all that other stuff? Um, it's actually necessary to do minimum viable product because of the technology lifecycle adoption curve. If you're a startup, the only people that will talk to you are early adopters. So if you try to sell to mainstream customers as we did at that virtual world company I mentioned, you're going to fail anyway because they don't want to buy from a startup. Therefore, any extra work you do to meet the standards of mainstream customers is by definition a form of waste. Since you're going to have to sell to early adopters anyway, let them fill in the gaps and help give you the feedback you need to learn. And just, I, want to, I can't stress this enough, MVP is for big vision products. If you're doing something small, if your plan is to ship something and see what happens, I guarantee you that you will succeed. You will succeed in seeing what happens. Congratulations. But if you don't fail, you can't learn. So what we need to do is start to think like scientists, make specific predictions about what's supposed to happen when people engage with the MVP, including sometimes the prediction they'll absolutely hate it, and then see, is that really actually true? When we did InView and we put out that first version of the product, it was so crappy. I mean, it would like crash your computer more often than it would give you a delightful 3D avatar experience. I, mean, I was personally embarrassed to have my name on it, except 
like, I first was really relieved when it turned out that nobody used it. But I was like, wait, <laughs> wait, hold on. If no one's going to use the product, why did I just spend the last nine months of my life arguing with my co-founders every single day? I can't tell you how many hours we invested arguing about, does it have to have this feature or that feature, fix this bug or that bug? All that institutional energy was all wasted. Um, you can read about these techniques online. I'm not going to go into any detail here. Um, the basic concept of smoke testing with landing pages, that's why I talked about creating the page with just a download button and see does anybody click it. Uh, we call the technique SEM on $5 a day. You can read about that on my blog. I'll talk in a moment about bringing split testing into the product. That's very important. All of the design thinking techniques of paper prototyping, customer discovery, uh, removing features like they did with cut and paste on the iPhone, all of those techniques are really valuable. And it's been written about quite a bit online, so I don't feel the need to go into it now. Happy to take questions about it in a moment. Uh, and then, so if it's so obvious, why don't people do it? Uh, I think there are three basic fears. The fear of the false negative. Um, you know, to maintain the reality distortion field requires keeping data at bay. Because you know, as long as there's no data, you can convince people that anything is going to happen. But as soon as there's even one data point, it starts to call into question, is it really going to happen? And so people sometimes feel like, if I put something small out there and people don't like it, you know, do I have to pivot at that point? Do I have to just give up? And that's just not entrepreneurship. Our goal is to persevere until it's completely obvious that the vision is wrong, and then pivot. Second, the visionary complex that customers don't know what they want, which is a true statement, but that doesn't absolve us from talking to them anyway. Uh, just because customers don't know what they want doesn't mean that they don't have useful information that we need. After all, our goal is to change customer behavior. When people say change the world, they don't usually mean actually changing, you know, carving your face into the surface of the moon or something like that. This is an episode of G.I. Joe I haven't heard about. What they're talking about is changing customer behavior in a beneficial way. Uh, and so in order to discover if that's possible, we have to test with customers but not necessarily obey them, as Darnash said. Uh, and then my favorite is too busy to learn. I always sometimes get the question, like, how could you guys afford to like, waste time in the early days building metrics into your product? Weren't you too busy building the features? And that's just going back to the idea that you could close your eyes and slam on the accelerator and hope for the best. What we have to do is actually create the space to get through that uh, build, measure, learn feedback loop. So uh, this is another technique I uh, took directly from Toyota Production System. It's called Five Whys. Uh, I know Joel has written about it, so you may have heard of this already, unlike most audiences, so I'll just address it briefly. The idea is that when anything goes wrong in our process, uh, we want to ask why five times in order to get to the root cause. So for example, uh, a server failed. Why? Well, uh, someone called this obscure API that caused the CPU load to go to 100. Okay, why? Well, they were a new employee, and they didn't realize that if you use that obscure API, then it will have this side effect. Why is that? Well, they were never properly trained in how to use our company's APIs. Or alternatively, our APIs are so complicated, no one could ever be trained to use them. Same. But then you say, OK, well, why is that? Well, their manager doesn't believe in training. Huh, that's odd. We started out with a technical problem of a server fault, but now we've got this managerial problem of someone who doesn't believe in training. The five whys approach is to make an incremental investment at each of the five layers of the analysis. So we'll bring the server back up. We'll obviously fix that API. We'll teach that engineer what they need to know. And we'll have a conversation with that person's manager to say, hey, you really should you know, train new engineers. But if you ever actually had that conversation with a real engineering manager, you might be expecting it to go something like this. When someone used to say stuff like that to me, I would say, you know what? You're so right. We really should be training our engineers. It will take me approximately eight weeks to develop a new comprehensive engineering training program. So if you have somebody who can do all the other stuff I was planning to do for the next eight weeks, I would be happy to do it, which is manager speak for no way in hell. <laughs> and so here's what we're going to do. Instead of having that completely fruitless argument, we're going to say, that's fine, that's fine. Since this was a minor problem, we're going to make a proportional investment in prevention. And let's say in this case, proportional will mean one hour's work. So great, you've got an eight-week plan, perfect. Just do the first hour of it and then stop. Oh, I couldn't get anything done in the first hour. It's like, really, nothing at all? 
what, we, what were you going to do first? Before you can spend 100 hours, you must have done something. For Well, I guess I would start by creating a wiki and creating a page where the training program is going to go. I'd say, great, let's just do that and stop. That doesn't seem very valuable, right? Except that the next time we have a problem caused by a training failure, we're going to have that same argument with maybe the same or a different manager, and they're going to say, I couldn't get anything done in an hour. And you say, sure you could. Dude, what's the first thing? Well, I create a wiki page. Ah, ah, ah. someone's already done that. <laughs> so uh, why don't you go ahead and do the second hour? Right? And notice what's happening here. The amount of time we spend in working on engineering training is directly proportional to the number of problems that engineering training is actually causing. So we have a natural feedback loop between the, the issues we're having uh, and, the, and the prevention we're taking. Is there a question over here? Is that what I saw? Yes. Did it take you a while to trust the system that you will actually come back to that the second time? We're still working on it. <laughs> uh, this is always a, per a perennial issue. Uh, and, and it really requires intense management support. So, so don't just try this at home unless you've actually got your team bought into the idea. And here's the issue. Five whys can go wrong in two ways. One is you can do the analysis and then convince yourself that you don't have to do any prevention. Right, which is always wrong. So our goal was, listen, you can use any amount of judgment to decide how much you should do. The only answers that are not allowed are zero and stop everything and work on it forever. Because right? the other thing you can do, of course, since we're in all engineers, we can say, ah, I have designed the perfect solution that will fix not just this problem, but every other possible problem from now until all eternity. It will take me only one month. <laughs> right? always, always, always takes only one month. I never heard it take you know, six months, even though, of course, if you actually go down that road, you'll never get anywhere. So either of those extremes is no good. And what you need to have, we actually would appoint for each area of our business a five wise master whose job was to run those meetings. And I've written a lot about this online. So if people are interested in the specific techniques, uh, how to use them in a startup context, uh, you can get it online. But that's the basic, the basic idea. The reason five wise is so powerful is that it acts as a natural speed regulator. And since I spent so much time talking about how speed wins, uh, sometimes people feel like, oh, that means I should go as fast as possible. But that's not true. We want to go as fast as we can reliably execute this model, right? We're getting through the build, measure, learn feedback loop. The, the fallacy of the older engineering paradigms was um, uh, time quality money pick two. Anyone ever trained in time quality money pick two? I, that's how I was trained as an engineer. It's an old engineering maxim. It turns out to be false. Uh, you cannot trade quality for time because quality problems eventually slow you down. So what we want to do is figure out how fast can we actually operate at a sustained level. And the nice thing about five whys is the more mistakes we're making, the more time we will have to spend in prevention, which slows us down, which allows us to make fewer mistakes. As our investments in prevention pay off, we make less mistakes, we can speed up. And so we're naturally regulating to find our optimal speed. Does that make sense? Let me talk about one last technique, and then I'll stop for questions. This is rapid split testing. Uh, people who work in direct marketing have known about split testing for years, and I feel like it's starting to become more and more known in product development. But I think it should be considered a core competency right up there with like knowing how to use a debugger. Um, so what I think we need to do is be split testing all the time so that it's just a completely obvious reflex, and there's no excuse not to do it. Uh, here's how we set it up at InView. I mean, we had a very simple API so that creating a new split test was always exactly one line of code. If it's two lines of code, someone can come up with an excuse not to do it. But one line, come on, one extra line, an if clause, come on, how hard is that? And when you're changing a product, it's even better, because you always have a natural split test. You have the way it works now and the way you propose it to work. So let's temporarily allow a little code duplication and just have two paths and see which one is better for customers. To, to do split testing, the hard part is actually not the test itself, but it's understanding the analytics behind it. Uh, you have to really understand the three A's of metrics. They have to be actionable, accessible, and auditable. Uh, I've written a lot about this, so I won't go into too much detail. And the basic idea here is that if you show someone a report, uh, the most valuable thing you can do with an analytics report is kill someone's pet project. That's where you get the savings. 
But of course, people don't want their pet project to be killed. What they want to do is say, those numbers aren't accurate. Uh, and so anytime you're dealing with what we call vanity metrics, like the number of hits you get in a month or your gross revenue or any kind of thing that's subject to external fluctuations, people will find all manner of excuses to weasel out of having to pay attention to it. Instead, what we want to do is have every uh, report that we have be completely obvious what's going on, and this last one is the one I'll harp on, and be auditable. Meaning if someone was skeptical and said, this report says that nobody used feature X or 100 people use feature X, I don't believe you. You can say, that's great. Let's go call those 100 people and ask them if they used it. What? Oh, well, we'll just, you know, every, the auditing is we can take the number 100 and remember that metrics are people too. So let's discover who are the 100 people that generated that specific number. Uh, last thing is measure the macro. And what this is is that in marketing, we often do these little split tests like change the color of a button and see if it improves the click-through rate. I'm all for those tests because the curse of product development is sometimes small things make a big difference and sometimes big things make no difference at all, and it's hard to tell which is which. So it's fine to test something small, but it's not fine to measure something small. Nobody cares about the click-through rate of the button. If you're changing the color of something, it's because you think it will change customer behavior in a material way. Otherwise, it's too small for a startup to be worried about. And so what I urge you is that for every test, only use your key high-level business metrics, the one you really care about, and use the same set every time. So these numbers are all made up, but this can give you kind of a flavor for what that report looks like. What's amazing is how many times uh, we have the impulse that if we make a change that makes things look better, but it changes customer behavior not at all, we want to ship it anyway. Because, well, it, it didn't harm anything, and it still looks better. If you have the discipline to say no, we will never ship something unless we can prove that it actually made customers' behavior better. What you'll discover is that over time, instead of your product getting prettier, it will get more effective. And I think that's what we really want. Um, so that's, that's split testing. That's kind of a sampling, I would say, of uh, techniques from the Lean Startup. There's, of course, much, much more. I write about this on my blog, um, and you can, you can learn a lot more. I have a book coming out next year, so you know, I'm sure you all want to buy hundreds of copies of it. Please let me know if I, I can help you uh, order in bulk. No problem. Uh, here's a bunch of the techniques. Again, what I believe about each of these techniques is that they operate at one specific stage of the feedback loop and have the net effect of optimizing total time. And that if we're willing to change some of these more sacred beliefs about whether we're an entrepreneur, about what is it that we're trying to do, about whether our goal is to execute or to learn, then we can actually increase the odds of our startups being successful. In other words, we can stop wasting people's time. Thank you all very much. We have time for some questions? Yeah. Is that a yes? I'll take some questions. Yes? How would you do fast iteration with the App Store? You can only release <laughs> frequently. Oh, how would you do rapid iteration on the App Store? Do it on Android, and then port to iPhone. <laughs> Seriously. Remember, our goal is not to make money. Our goal is to learn. So if the learning is equivalent on the two platforms, always choose the platform with the highest agility. That said, it's important to understand that continuous deployment doesn't mean every 20 minutes. It means as fast as you can. So you know. For teams that are operating, like doing a release only once a month, which I'm sure many of you are, actually, I have a quick show of hands. Who does, who does releases once a month? Just curious. OK, so all of you can do operate on the App Store, no problem. Uh, it only becomes a problem as you really start to crank down the speed of iteration. Does that help? Questions? Yeah. Um, I like the methodology and the concept that you're driving at, but uh, in our particular <laughs> industry, if we put out software with mistakes, people can get hurt uh -huh. because we're doing electronic network software. So how do we take advantage of this methodology without killing our, our client? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a very nice way of saying, if I do what you're saying, I will accidentally kill people. Right. And if, is that OK? No. <laughs> 
No, that's not fair. The question was how to do it in a situation where the software is truly mission critical. And that's actually a really important question. There's, there's two parts to the answer. The first is there's an assumption in your question that uh, operating under a like, fast iteration continuous deployment option will lead to lower quality software over time. But that's actually not true. I think it actually, because it prevents us from making mistakes, allows us to, to discover our mistakes much more quickly. Uh, it's just that the kind of testing that we'll do before something will go into production will be different. So I'll give you the example of a company called Kaching. When they make a mistake, nobody dies, but they're a mutual fund company. So they actually manage your money for you. Like they actually direct your mutual fund to make trades on your behalf and your brokerage account. So when they make a mistake, people lose millions of dollars. Uh, and that's, you know, and, and they're SEC regulated. So, you know, they are under a kind of corporate death sentence if they were to make mistakes. But they found that by practicing continuous deployment, uh, that just never happens. And in fact, it happens a lot less than it does in organizations that rely on a manual QA step. The problem with manual QA is that at first it seems like a really good deal because you have human beings kind of actually testing everything that could go wrong. But because the worst part of software is action at a distance, right, a change over here can cause a change in behavior over there that seem unrelated, you have to check everything every time. The number of things to check is a function of how much software has ever been written, which is a function of how many employees you have had times how long they have been writing code, which um, basically grows polynomially with time. Very few people can afford an organization where the QA department also grows polynomially with time. And therefore, at some point, they have to start making trade-offs and say, well, we'll only check the stuff that's related to the change. That's when you know you're in trouble. Because of course, if you knew ahead of time what was related to what, you wouldn't need a QA department at all. <laughs> so that's my answer. Any other questions? Right here. Customer discovery, what would be like your basic key elements to get the best customers? Build the features for your, this ideal customer, find the customer and actually build it, like, or just kind of a balance of between the two. I don't know if I'm again. Okay. Um, I got that you're from Ireland. That's good. <laughs> I'll be in Ireland in a couple weeks. We can discuss. Yeah, so basically, customer discovery. Yeah. Like, if you say, build the product and then call the customers, or have the features ready and then the customers will come, like, What's the best way to? Oh, I what's the best way to do customer discovery? Uh, there's no general purpose answer. Every industry, the dynamics of how many customers you have are really different. I mean, think about it. If you're trying to build the next Google, you're going to have millions of customers. Uh, but if you're trying to build some like highly specialized enterprise software, you might have a total universe of 100 potential customers or anything in between. And so the specific tactics to get to know those customers uh, are going to be different. But the general approach is simply it's not either or. In parallel, do both activities, customer development and product development. Right, so some part of your time or your organization, or even if it's just one of you, split your mind, you know, split your days, alternate between those activities. One, having conversations with potential customers, trying to get inside their head, understand who they are, understand what their problems are, and on the other days, uh, actually try building out the solution. You can't do one without the other. If you just work on the solution, if you only do product development, you'll eventually achieve failure. But if you only do customer development, if you're only spending your time with customers, I guarantee you, you will eventually start trying to build teleportation. Because right, it was like, what do people really want? If you start walking really up their hierarchy of needs, what would be great would be immortality, uh, you know, free energy, and teleportation. And so you have to have both activities in order for one to balance out the other. We have time for some more? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And the question that you just came is up to big organization. I always see that you end up with kind of one department who builds, one who measures, and one who learns. And then they get disconnected. Do you have any ideas? How yeah, they yeah, I do. The question is how to scale it. Um, the true answer is we don't know for sure that it scales yet. I mean, InView is probably a 120 employee company now, so you know, it's gone to a reasonable scale. Every time InView has doubled in size, uh, there was somebody who said, well, sure, it worked at size X, but it'll never work at size 2X. And I heard that when we were five people, 10 people, 20 people, so, so far we've scaled up okay. 
Uh, and people are starting to build larger organizations with these ideas, but uh, the true answer is we don't know. The first thing, we, we know some things that definitely don't work. And the first is um, what Fred Taylor called functional foremanship, or we call departments. If you have a department that builds, a department that measures, and a department that learns, I guarantee you, you will do not, none of the three activities particularly well. Or maybe I should say, you'll do each of the three activities exceptionally well, except that the whole system will accomplish none of your goals. So the issue as you scale up is you can't just have one problem team, one solution team anymore. You have to fragment the company into multiple small modules. And the question is, my experience is entrepreneurs face a fundamental choice. Either they can try to recreate for themselves the experience they had when the company was small, when they, were, they could all sit in a room together and make all the key decisions, take in all the key inputs, and iterate quickly. I call that the hive mind approach. Because what happens is they still stay in that room, but now the company grows around them. And the company, everyone in the company basically becomes an extension of the hive mind. A tentacle goes out, touches the world, and gets more information. But the fast iteration is maintained for the founders. I've done it both ways. That's more fun. As a founder, it's great. You really have this feeling of power that you're affecting the world. The problem is that eventually your inputs become in no way correlated to reality. And so you know, you're getting high on your own supply again. The other alternative is instead of creating that experience for yourself, make everyone in your company a founder of their own small team and really decentralize the decision making. Um, and then as a, as a founder, your job is to really focus on the system that empowers those people and make sure they're acting in a coordinated fashion. In other words, you become a manager. But not the kind of general manager that we like to caricature, an entrepreneurial manager. That, to me, is the essence of entrepreneurial management. It's making other people into founders. It's not as much fun, but it does work. So I think one is better than the other. Yes, anybody else? Anyone in the back? I feel like people in the back don't get to ask questions. Yes? Yell. How much uh, initial effort went into building the health check automation you have that makes sure you don't screw stuff up? And how much, what percentage would you say of ongoing technical effort is, uh, goes towards keeping it actually up to date and working? Those are really good questions. The first is how much time initially went into building the cluster immune system? Exactly zero hours. Um, the very first version of our cluster immune system was a rsync shell script that was one line long that would just push from one directory onto our one server. Uh, and we just followed the five whys approach. We didn't know it was called five whys at the time. We just thought of it as making every mistake only once, uh, making it incrementally more sophisticated over time. And that's a much better approach than trying to build something sophisticated at the beginning. Even if you built yourself a perfect replica of the system we have at InView, uh, then you would have a system that is perfectly well adapted to my company. If you follow the approach that I recommend here, you will wind up with a system that is perfectly well adapted to your company. It's much better. Second part of your question was, what's the ongoing effort required to maintain? Uh, and it is significant. I, I don't want to kid about this. I would say uh, between 20 and 40% of the company's efforts are, are spent in what we generally consider engineering infrastructure overhead. That doesn't bother me for two reasons. The first is, um, I don't think most organizations have a very honest accounting of how they invest their time. Uh, I think that the traditional waterfall model actually hides problems. My favorite is like the guy who has to be the integration monkey. Anyone ever had that job? I have. It's usually the most junior person on the team who has to stay up until 2 a.m. merging branches together. We generally feel like that person's time not very valuable, so we don't mind. Of course, that means that like some of the most critical decisions that affect the company's performance are made at 2 a.m. by some guy who doesn't know what the hell's going on. Uh, so I, you know, I'm happy to trade those invisible costs to the more visible costs of continuous deployment. And the second thing I've noticed, especially now that I'm not involved with the company day to day, uh, it's easier for me to see that when the company makes a conscious effort to cut back on the investment in this kind of infrastructure, they inevitably have a temporary boost in productivity and then an immediate decline. Uh, because, of course, 
as soon as you take the feedback loop out of operation, you know, things go haywire. And so that gives me confidence that we're actually investing the time really well. Ultimately, the, the real test is, do we deliver for our customers faster than our competitors? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Eric, I just had a um, question about background, your background. Um, you refer a lot to the Toyota system and I think, where did that education come from? Where did you get exposed to that? Um, I read a book called Lean Thinking. <laughs> the question is, how did I, you know, my, what is my educational background? How did I learn about Toyota production system and stuff like that? I have no formal management training. I'm not, I do not have an MBA. Uh, maybe I should have disclaimed that at the front. Um, I haven't actually worked on a factory floor. In fact, I know nothing about how cars are assembled. Occasionally, I give a talk where there's actually someone who does know about that, and they're like, hold on, hold on. That's not, you know, that's not right. And I always worry about that. Um, the truth is, uh, when I was at InView, I had this intuition, you know, what I would consider the very beginning, the seed of uh, what eventually became the Lean Startup. You know, I had the benefit of Steve Blank and the customer development model to build on, uh, and Kent Beck and the agile development model. I had those kind of antecedents to build on. But my attempts to implement them were just they weren't working. And I couldn't understand what the problem was. And for those who understand Thomas Kuhn and the, and the study of scientific paradigms, it really was that kind of experience where a paradigm that had made people productive in the past ceases to make them productive in the present. And, it, and for a long time, I mean, I would say for probably a decade, I spent time trying to tinker with the current paradigm to make it work for me. And only out of real desperation did I start to be like, well, where did this paradigm come from? Right? When I talk about the manufacturing metaphor, I was like, oh, I should probably learn something about manufacturing. Like, because that's what my whole paradigm is based on. And then when I started to read about it, I was stunned to discover that, you know, they don't use it anymore. I was pretty upset. So, <laughs> but it, it, you know, I think that if you go out and you, and you decided you want to teach yourself an MBA, you want to read all these books, you know, and, and get educated, I don't think it will be a very valuable exercise. What, what worked for me was when I had specific problems, trying to reach out and understand the theories that might help me predict those problems and, and figure out solutions. Do we have time to squeeze one more in? One more. All right, one more. We'll say, make it a good one. Who's got a really good question? This guy right here. The uh, slide just before this where you listed tons of techniques. Yes. How many of those are in your book? Can you sell us on your book? Ah, <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Oh, you mean this slide? Yeah. This slide here, yes. Every single one will be in my book. I guarantee it. You will become a guru. No. Uh, first of all, the book will not be available until next fall. So the publishing industry doesn't exactly work on rapid iteration. <laughs> However, that doesn't mean that you can't pre-order the book today. <laughs> Uh, because I do believe in rapid iteration. In fact, those who pre-order now will, of course, get to be part of crafting the content of the book itself. So if you have an opinion about what should be in the book, I invite you to join me in that uh, process. My guess is something like 10% of you are, in fact, early adopters. You are all welcome. It just so happens there's a huge sale on this thing called the Ultimate Lean Startup Bundle being sold on AppSumo, A-P-P-S-U-M-O, AppSumo. Just happened to have launched today, so it's a really good question. Uh, I have a ringer right here in the audience. Uh, AppSumo is like a Groupon for online apps, and included in the like thousands of dollars worth of stuff that you'll get for only $40 will be a copy of my book when it eventually comes out, and tons of other stuff in the meantime. So thank you for that. That's a, just my favorite kind of question. Uh, I am on Twitter. This is my blog, Startup Lessons Learned. You can drop me an email anytime. I'm, I'm at your disposal, and I thank you all very much. Thanks. That's great.